0: Good morning, my name is Allison Pinches. For those of you who don't know me, and I'm one of the pastoral staff here at Courtright. And as we were considering which passage to choose for our text this morning, we were reminded that in every one of the gospels, the accounts of Jesus's life, there are numerous chapters and detailed descriptions devoted to Jesus being betrayed, arrested, and crucified. The Gospel of John spends half of the book talking about the last seven days of Jesus' life. Two out of four of the Gospels don't even mention the story of his birth, but all four of them talk about his death. Time seems to slow down in these chapters. In the rest of the Gospels, we move quickly from miracle to miracle and place to place, but in all four of the Gospels, when we get to this story, long descriptions are given. Details are included, conversations recorded, and time slows as we take in the weight of this story. So in a nutshell, that is what we do together on Good Friday. We slow down. We come in from our busy lives. We pay attention to the story, to the details. We listen in on the conversations, And we try to consider the weight of this story. Last Sunday, we remember Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, where he was welcomed as a king. There was something different about this king as he rode in on a donkey and not a battle horse. Regardless, he was hailed and celebrated by the people. Finally, the one we've been waiting to rescue us, to overthrow the Romans, to return our nation to us. He's here. And so today, we pick up the story a few days later in John chapter 18. We're considering sections from chapter 18 and 19, so I encourage you to have your Bibles out with you. We won't be able to read all of 18 and 19, but I encourage you to do so as you're able. Would you join with me in prayer? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we pause to stand at your cross together this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes to see you for who you truly are, perhaps in ways that we never have before. Would you draw us closer to ourselves? Would you remove confusion, disappointment, and despair, and lead us to seeing you? We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 18. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met, them, met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God as we walk through this story of Jesus' arrest, interrogation, crucifixion, and death, we're going to consider this story through three angles. Jesus' identity, Jesus' authority, and how people respond to Jesus. So we begin with identity. Even if these 12 verses were all we knew about Jesus, we could tell a lot about him. First, he's a leader. He leads the disciples into the garden. And as a good leader does, he protects them by asking for his disciples to be spared. Jesus asks the soldiers and officials, who is it you want? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. It's a name and an address and no acknowledgement of his position or authority. It's about like saying, Joe from 42nd Street. Jesus responds with a statement that can be interpreted on two levels. He says... I am He. Most simply put, He's answering their request. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I'm He. That's me. But there are some clues that what He says also carries another layer of significance. The author includes it three times in just a couple of lines I am He. I am He. I told you that I am He. But even more than that, when Jesus first says, I am he, the soldiers and officials drew back and fell to the ground. Now here is Jesus, unarmed, in his usual garments, with the disciples lurking somewhere in the background. And Jesus has come out to meet this mob of soldiers and officials carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And this unarmed rabbi says three words, and the armed guards fall to the ground. In saying, I am he, Jesus has answered their question, but he has also said much more. In Exodus 3, Moses encounters God in a burning bush, and God speaks to him and sends him to Egypt to rescue his people from slavery. Moses asks him, Who should I tell them sent me? And for the first time, God names himself. He tells Moses what to say I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So now we have to do a little language leapfrog here. So that was originally written in Hebrew, and then the Old Testament scriptures were translated into Greek in a translation called the Septuagint. So when God says, I am who I am in Exodus 3, in the Greek version, it's translated ego eimi. The Gospel of John, our text, was written in Greek. And so if you look at the original text, when they say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth and he responds, he says, Ego eimi, I am he. No wonder they were bowled over. This Jesus, home address Nazareth, just uttered God's own name and he said it about himself. As preacher and author Daryl Johnson likes to say, no one ever spoke the way this man spoke. Jesus of Nazareth and Lord God Almighty, ego me, I am he. Even as we watch Jesus be arrested, interrogated, beaten, humiliated, crucified, and even succumb to death, the author is making it abundantly clear that at no time is anything happening apart from the will of God. Leslie Newbegin writes, through the events described, Jesus is portrayed not as the passive victim, but as the majestic, sovereign initiator and master of all that takes place. We see this from the first verse. Jesus is the one leading them out into the open to a place they often went, When the soldiers and religious officials come to the garden, John tells us clearly in verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out to meet them. There is no doubt for Jesus about what is to happen and why they have come. Jesus doesn't hide or fight. He knows what is going to happen and goes out to meet them. Throughout the narrative, even though things are being done to him, he is knowingly and willingly allowing this to happen. This whole situation has not caught Jesus off guard. He's actually been preparing himself and his disciples for this moment. We see that especially in the four chapters leading up to this one, chapters 14 through 17. When Jesus goes out to meet the soldiers and officials and says, if you are looking for me, then let these men go, John tells us that that is so that the words he spoke all the way back in chapter 6 are fulfilled. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. John is continually pointing us to the larger story that is at work. He's doing this for a couple of reasons. First, because what is playing out is so important and so significant that he doesn't want us to miss it. He's also doing it because what is playing out is so confusing. The townspeople, like we said, have just welcomed him into town as king, pinning their hopes on him, looking to him to make their lives better. And now he's being arrested? The disciples have walked with him for three years. They've come to believe he is more than just a man. They know he is of God. They've given everything to follow him, and now he's going to be killed? It sure didn't look like saving the world. And so John is constantly pointing and saying, this wasn't a mistake, this wasn't some terrible accident, it's okay, this is part of a bigger story, a story that's been going on for a long time, a story that Jesus is familiar with, and he has been pointing to himself for all of his earthly ministry. Take heart, what looks like failure is part of a bigger story. What looks like defeat must happen. In this short section, we have a whole variety of responses to Jesus, to his identity and authority. There's the devastating betrayal of a close, dear friend, Judas. And then in others, we see an urge for control. There's fear and anger. This is all taking place at Passover, which is a festival time, when thousands of people would come to Jerusalem and crowd the city for the feast. The religious and political leaders are especially wary of any rebellions or uprisings that might happen when the city is crowded, emotions are high, and the situation is volatile. They don't want to see any issues, and they finally have a chance to capture someone they've been plotting against. There's also fear about his influence and a desire to control the situation. They come armed with weapons, ready for a fight. And then there's Peter. Peter, one especially close to Jesus, friend, disciple. Peter who believes Jesus is I am. Peter knows who he is, but Peter doesn't understand. In his impulsiveness, fear, and desperation, Peter lashes out and cuts the ear off the servant. And in Jesus' rebuke to put your sword away, We also hear him questioning his dear friend. Do you not understand? He asks, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? As we've said, Jesus is submitting to this knowingly, willfully. But Peter doesn't understand. It sure doesn't look like saving the world. And back to Judas. So we, of course, don't know exactly what he was thinking. We know he received money to betray Jesus. But I can't help imagining that behind this act, more than greed, was disappointment. This leader, this guy that he had sacrificed to follow, to be with, to learn from, is not leading in the way he thinks he should. He's not doing the things he thinks he should. And perhaps it is disappointment and frustration that leads Judas to do this terrible thing. And so we have a myriad of responses. Disbelief at who he is, a desire to control, frustration, disappointment, confusion. And perhaps in these responses we can find ourselves. I just thought it was going to be different. I thought you'd do something. I didn't think it would come to this. I don't understand. Our text moves on. Jesus is taken first to the religious leaders, Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. They question Jesus, and dissatisfied with his responses, the religious leaders hand him over to the political authorities, the representative of Rome, a man named Pilate. Given a lack of charges, Pilate tries to hand him back over to the religious authorities to deal with him, but they insist they can't execute him. The Roman authorities can do the dirty work of the religious leaders so they can keep their hands clean. They get into a discussion about whether Jesus is a king. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. And whether Jesus thinks he is king is a key issue for Pilate. He's not concerned about the religious implications of Jesus' claims. But as acting governor for Rome, it's a problem if there is someone claiming to be king. But Jesus' answers leave Pilate even more perplexed. He reports back to the people, I find no basis for a charge against him, and tries to have him released, but the Jewish leaders insist that he remain. Perhaps in an effort to appease the crowds, Pilate has Jesus mocked and flogged, and then once again tries to hand him back, wondering if this beating will appease the crowd. But once again, they insist and chant, crucify, crucify. The back and forth continues with Pilate getting more concerned, questioning Jesus and ultimately trying to free Jesus, but the Jewish leaders press back and question Pilate's loyalty and allegiance. We pick up the story in chapter 19, verse 14. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened, that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus's lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Once again, we will look at this passage through the same three angles, considering Jesus' identity, authority, and how people respond to Jesus. In the previous passage, we saw Jesus as son. As he said, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He is a son carrying out the will of his Father. In this passage, we see him as a son caring for his mother and redefining family. He gives his mother and dear friend to one another as new family to be mother and son. This passage contains two paradoxical images of Jesus as prisoner and king. We see Jesus as prisoner as he's handed over, as he carries his own cross, and as he is crucified in the form reserved for the worst criminals, the most horrendous form of execution they could come up with. And then throughout his interrogation by the officials and into this passage, we have this repeated question of Jesus as king. The first question that Pilate asks Jesus is, are you the king of the Jews? At the beginning of chapter 19, the soldiers mock him as a king. They put a purple robe on him and stick a crown, but a crown made of thorns on his head. They slap him and degraded him, saying, hail, king of the Jews. In the passage we just read, Pilate asks them, Shall I crucify your king? And with incriminating accuracy, they say, We have no king but Caesar. To drive the point home, Pilate has a sign nailed to the cross, reading Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And there he hangs. Jesus of Nazareth. And there he hangs the king of the Jews. Pilate has the sign written in Aramaic, the spoken language of the day, as well as Latin and Greek, giving a hint that he's not just king of the Jews, but king for all. What does it mean that Jesus is king? Even though we now technically have a king, we're kind of removed from appreciating the implications of what it means to have a king. A king is your protector, your leader, your ruler. He says how things will be, and things are done according to his wishes. People live in structures and under his ruling and authority. Good kings care for the welfare of all their subjects. King of the Jews, king for the world, hanging on a cross. It sure didn't look like saving the world. Again we consider who has authority in this story. It sure looks like the soldiers and guards and certainly Pilate have authority. It seems like they're running the show. And the Jewish leaders have authority as Pilate is pushed by their aggression to condemn Jesus. But as we've said, John has made it very clear that nothing is happening to Jesus without his knowledge and submission. In chapter 19.11, Jesus says to Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Even Jesus' final breath is so clearly and deliberately on his own authority. Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He declares, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And That is exactly what happens. Throughout these chapters, there is a refrain. This happens so that scripture might be fulfilled. This happens so that scripture might be fulfilled. Nothing is happening to Jesus Without his knowledge or will. And we can even see throughout the gospel stories, Jesus understands what is going to happen and prepares himself and the disciples for this moment. But this refrain, so that scripture might be fulfilled, tells us that the story we're in is even larger. With Jesus' life and even how he dies, Jesus is fulfilling what he has told them and he is fulfilling hundreds and hundreds of years of prophecy. He's fulfilling their scriptures, and their scriptures point to a Messiah like him. What is happening is part of a story that is larger than even Jesus himself. This is God's rescue plan to save the world, and all of scripture testifies to this. God created us to be known and loved by God and to know and love him. But we decided we knew best. We chose to live independent apart from him. We doubted his goodness. And so sin entered the world. And sin has consequences in our own lives, in things we ought not to have done, and things we ought to have done, and in the ways we think, move, and operate in the world. But sin also has far reaching consequences beyond us as individuals. When sin entered the world, so did disease and death and violence and betrayal and brokenness in relationships and cancer and infertility and sickness and degradation and suffering and mourning and pain and despair. And God was not content to leave his world like that. And he wasn't content to leave us like that. And so he sent Jesus. Jesus came to release the captive world from sin to restore relationships and lead us back to God. Revelation 21 says, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And the one on the throne, the way to the throne, the path for the king was the cross, the way for all things to be made new. It sure didn't look like saving the world, but that's exactly what it was. Our hope for the world our hope for our own shortcomings, our hope for the end of suffering and pain, that is the work of the cross. Scripture points to this moment. The gospel writers point to this moment. The early church leaders point to this moment when Jesus, the guy from Nazareth, Jesus, the king of the Jews, Jesus, the king for all, saves the world. our final angle, how do people respond to Jesus? We have some different examples in this story. Some respond with disbelief. They don't believe he is who he says he is. The religious leaders and officials say he can't be. This is not what the Messiah would look like. This is not what the king of the Jews would do. He didn't fit their expectations and so they dismissed him. Worse than that, their grasp on what they thought the Messiah should be was so tight that they had to destroy anything or anyone that didn't fit their vision. They can't see him for who he is. He doesn't match their paradigm, and so they don't believe, and some even have him destroyed. We see another response in the disciples. For the most part, the dis- disciples disappear into the background in these chapters. They have been with Jesus for three years. They have stayed together, traveled together, eaten together, ministered together, laughed together, and cried together. They have grown to know him and to know that he is more than Jesus from Nazareth. They have come to believe him, to put their faith in him. I can only imagine how they must have felt. It wasn't supposed to end like this. This can't be the end of the story. The defeat, the despair, the confusion, this sure doesn't look like saving the world. They have a paradigm of who he is and what he's supposed to do, and their paradigm has been shattered. Even though Jesus had been talking about this, it wasn't until after that they finally understood and could trace the pieces he had been pointing to the whole time. But in this moment, fear, anger, disappointment, frustration, shame, confusion. There are a number of women, including Jesus' mother and aunt and others who've been close to him, as well as one male disciple, and they are all standing near the cross. They offer him the gift of their presence. Even in their confusion, even in their sorrow, even in their disappointment and despair, They are there at the foot of the cross. This gift of presence is profound, and it is too infrequently my response in the midst of disappointment and despair. The response of either disappointment or or, or disbelief are ones I can certainly relate to. I don't understand. Why do you do this and not this? How can I hold all these things to be true about you? How do I hold this tension? Where do you find yourself in this story? Do you see Jesus for who he truly is? Or do you miss him because he doesn't, think, doesn't fit what you think he should be? He doesn't do the things you think he would do. Maybe you don't even realize that you have a paradigm, a way of looking at who God should be, and Jesus doesn't fit or maybe you've been following for some time. You thought you knew him, but life has left you confused and disappointed, maybe angry and frustrated, and your disappointment makes it hard to see him for who he really is. Disbelief or disappointment? Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head, and gave up his spirit. It sure didn't look like saving the world. Wherever you find yourself, let's linger for a while longer at the foot of the cross.